for future economic trends. This is BizTalk. China is leading the world towards a roadmap for biodiversity conservation for the coming decade and beyond. COP15 is going to set up the future target in the next. Ten years, thirty years, or even longer. Engaging the private sector to ease the funding gap for biodiversity protection. We need to see what kind of maybe incentive measures and the policies can be developed for the private sector. Tackling climate change alone will not succeed without solving the biodiversity loss issues. Both need to be addressed simultaneously. We're in this period now where we have just had COP15 Part One, COP26 in Glasgow in the UK on climate change, and then COP15 Part Two. So it's really important to look at the whole cycle, you know, consumption and production in both climate change and biodiversity. Join us this week with BizTalk and find out how to boost the public and private financing in the underfunded area of biodiversity conservation and climate change at large. Only on BizTalk. Only on CGTN. Hello and welcome to this edition of Climate Talk on CGTN. Today we、we'll、focus on biodiversity. Biodiversity loss and climate change are both driven by human activities and mutually reinforce each other. Neither will be successfully resolved unless both are tackled together. So to discuss more about the challenges of biodiversity conservation, especially how to provide necessary funding to achieve the targets. We're now joined by three distinguished guests today: Tang Dingding, academic member of the International Financial Forum, and Li Fang, country director of World Resources Institute China, and also Mr. Terry Tongshed, advisor of Hudson Institute. Well, thank you so much for your time today, ladies and gentlemen. Building a shared future for mankind and all species. By hosting the 15th meeting of the Conference of the Parties, or COP15, in Kunming, China signals its greater engagement in environmental protection. The Kunming Declaration, announced at the first phase of COP15, has made it clear that biodiversity will be put on a path to recovery by 2030. The second part of COP15 will be face-to-face -face meetings, which will also be held in Kunming in April and May. As we know from the Kunming、uh, summit. Putting biodiversity on a path to recovery is a defining challenge of this decade. So begins the Kunming Declaration.、Um, so let me start with your comments on this declaration.、Uh, what needs to be done further in the second part of meeting as well? So, Miss Tang, you go first. Kunming Conference achieved a very important uh, uh, good results, in particular. Enhance the、uh, common goals and、uh, consensus on the biodiversity conservation globally, but also uh, uh, during that meetings、uh, give us a lot of important message. For instance, we need to enhance the、uh, collaborations with the financial sector. Multilateral, you know, financial institutions needs to take more positive and active, you know,、uh, important contributions. Everybody know that、uh, our goals of the IG, you know, that you know,、uh, formulated ten years ago, not yet good, you know, achieved. According to the、uh, review of that, you know,、uh, implementation, in fact, twenty、uh, goals of the IG biodiversity conservation, no one fully, you know, achieved, you know, by the end of the last year. The IG biodiversity targets were set by more than 190 countries at the Convention on Biological Diversity in 2010 in IG, Japan. 
The targets aim to ease biodiversity pressures and restore the global ecosystem by 2020. But the UN warned that insufficient progress had been achieved by the deadline. And Dr. Fan,、uh, Ms. Tan just mentioned we fell short of previous targets. But will this conference be a game changer? Will it, will it restart global efforts in the next decade? COP15 is going to set up the future target in the next 10 years, 30 years, or even longer. So that is a good opportunity for China, especially after return to UN and host this. COP15, the global events to show the global governance、uh, capacity and、mm-hmm. also the leadership. China is becoming more open.、Mm-hmm. The conference, parties conference, telling story and show the China's experiences in biodiversity conservation using elephant immigrant from the. Uh, protected area to the city and then back to the protected area. So that is really lovely. And also use the kind of the minority young women to show how they can use their kind of the group of people and using their knowledge for biodiversity conservation in the remote area.、Mm-hmm. Indeed, we're seeing some positive progress at the summit.、Uh, but, Mr. Townshend, I'd like to hear your comments on this. Are you more or less optimistic about、uh, biodiversity conservation? I'm certainly more optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I think the first one for me is that leaders were engaged. So, I think nine international leaders,、uh, in addition to, to President Xi,、uh, addressed the conference. And to me, this is a really important step forward because if we look back, At the lessons from the climate change process,、uh, it, the initial agreement, the Kyoto Protocol, and the earlier agreements were negotiated by environment ministers. And often, when those environment ministers went back to their governments, they didn't have the levers to pull to be able to deliver on the agreement. We only really started to see progress, real progress, on the climate change. Uh, debate when leaders were involved in Copenhagen in 2009, which ultimately led to the Paris Agreement. And I think we're now seeing institutional structures in government that bring together, bring climate change sort of out of the environment department and more into more central economic planning and policy departments. And I think that is essential、uh, to be able to deal with with climate change effectively. And it's the same with biodiversity. You know, some of the The issues that we need to tackle on biodiversity loss are related to agriculture, are related to infrastructure, and environment ministries don't have the power to do that. So it's vital that leaders take responsibility for this issue. And so it was encouraging to see、uh, nine leaders, in addition to President Xi, address the conference in part one. And I'd love to see a lot more leaders. And participating in part two, so that for me was a really, really、uh, important element of of COP15. I think another thing from from part one is actually the extensive media coverage in China on biodiversity has really helped to elevate this issue domestically、uh, and raise people's awareness. You know, I think every media outlet I saw. Was running front page and features on biodiversity. Why it's important, you know, and I think that in itself 
is a really important outcome of COP15 because we really need more awareness among the public uh, on this issue, you know, to the, to the same extent that, that we have or is building uh, on climate change. So, so for me, there, that was a really important aspect. Coming up next, the funding gap is significant when it relates to biodiversity production. What is important is to engage the private sector in participating and filling the gap. The condition of the successful biodiversity conservation is supporting <coughs> by the government setting up the market situation. We need to see uh, what kind of maybe incentive measures and the policies can be developed for the private sector. The private sector you know, will only invest if there's a profit because I've said, you know, engaging the private sector is absolutely fundamental. A platform for an in-depth look in economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. Biodiversity loss risks transcend borders. It requires globally coordinated actions offering not only solutions but also funds needed for biodiversity preservation. China pledged 232 million U.S. dollars to a new biodiversity fund for developing countries at the first phase of Kunming Summit in October 2021. France and Britain also promised to direct more of their climate budgets to protect biodiversity. And in Japan, Tokyo announced a $70 million extension of its own biodiversity fund. Besides public funds, biodiversity protection also requires engagement from private capital. How should we encourage and incentivize the private sector to participate? We need to uh, set up a kind of you know workable uh, goals, but sometimes mobilize more resources coming from not only governments and the financial resources of the MDP, but also uh, social and the private financial capitals also needs to be mobilized on this topic. Uh, as uh, Ms. Town just mentioned, financial is a critical part. Do you think it is achievable to, to narrow the gap to provide necessary support? Nowadays, the government only pay almost uh, one, uh, 13 to 15 percent of the necessary fund. The business only takes a small part, so it's very important how to wisely use the government money to leverage more social and uh, business money to come in from the government they can set up the laws and regulations and build up the market for the business to let them when they invest in the nature and they can get the financial return. Mr. Tang, how far are we now towards these goals? According to the experience of the climate change, you can see after almost 30 years still facing the um, financial you know, gaps, that's why, you know, during the discussions and negotiations on the climate change issues, that is a very, very difficult issue. So same things for the biodiversity. I do believe that the next uh, part of the COP15, financial issues will be the, you know, uh, important, even maybe uh, the first, part, first priority to be discussed during that meetings. I myself, you know, confident we will, you know, maybe achieve these goals in the sometimes near future. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mr. Townshend, what do you think about the urgency to shore up funding and share with us some best practices in doing that? The issue at the moment is that our economic systems and our incentives um, do not make it profitable for private sector to invest 
in nature or natural capital, as we as we should call it. So the really important uh, priority is that governments must design the right regulatory systems and incentives that steer private sector investment. So we know there are going to be trillions of private sector investment over the next few years. And the vital thing is to ensure that investment is consistent with the biodiversity goals that we hope and expect to, to come out from, from Kuming. You know, that, and that means really rewarding people appropriately who protect and restore nature and penalizing appropriately those who destroy nature. And that's sort of a fundamental job of governments uh, to do once we have the Kuming Agreement uh, next spring. What, what do you think on that? Yeah, I want to uh, echo Terry. There's one saying, best solution is prevention. On one hand, we need to increase the government MDB's investment at the first stage. And at the same time, we need to reduce or stop the harmful mm -hmm. subsidies. And it is very important to stop the harmful economic activity to the nature. And Mr. Tang, what do you think about the necessary incentives to encourage investment? What about market-based solutions? Like Terry mentioned, you know, private sector needs to get profit. Without such, you know, profit return, it's difficult for them to maybe involved uh, in the you know practice of the biodiversity conservation. But sometimes I do agree with Dr. Fang. I feel that you know prevention very much you know important. We need to use the approach of the prevention to uh, uh, minimize the potential uh, loss and impacts caused by the investments uh, of the financial institutions, like you know multilateral development bank, World Bank, IFC, ADB, AIB. They themselves have very very you know good you know policies and uh, guidelines to minimize or to making the risk identification and uh, mitigation measures needs to be taken for all investment activities. Therefore, I myself feel that incentives, not only for the, you know, uh, for the uh, problem solving, but also for the prevention needs to be prepared and issued by the government. Mm -hmm. The EU says that human-induced changes to ecosystems and the extinction of species have been more rapid in the past 50 years than at any time in human history. IPBES, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystems, also warned in 2020 that around 1 million animal and plant species are threatened with extinction, many within decades. And Dr. Fang, do you think the government should be more ambitious in providing green financing because the Chinese government is mobilizing financing resources towards this uh, initiative that are beneficiary to the environment? In China, plays a really good example for urgent protection or restoration the real or in, uh, endangered species, such as China using the public funds for the red lining and return to the, from the uh, agricultural land, farmland to the forest, back to the grassland. So that is a, uh, China used 90, 93% of the money of the wildlife protection from the pocket of the government budget. But in the following stage, it's really need to think about the systematic solutions. 
after the urgent measures. A systematic solution, we should think about the green finance. It's really need innovation, innovative ways to create a new system. We call it a systematic change. Indeed. And Mr. Townsend, you just mentioned about the uh, urgency of uh, government <coughs> to have regulatory framework uh, to encourage uh, this biodiversity conservation efforts. Uh, however, you know, some countries have this regulatory framework while others may not have this uh, policy. So harmful activities may be transferred from one place to another. Your mm. thoughts on that? I think in terms of developing countries, we know that for example, some of the most important and valuable biodiversity like rainforests are in some of the poorest uh, developing countries. So it is really important that richer countries help those developing countries to develop the capacity and, and develop those frameworks that are needed to protect that biodiversity. And it's right that the richer countries should compensate those developing countries for stewarding, for looking after those global assets um, in developing countries. And I hope that other countries will come forward and, and uh, help support that too. And it will be a really important political aspect of the negotiation. So I think in terms of the, the Kuming agreement that we hope to come forward in spring, you know, ensuring there's enough support for those poorest uh, developing countries that have that rich biodiversity will be really important in terms of getting their support for a new global agreement. Mm -hmm. So, Mr. Tang, what do you think about the uh, financial gap the developing countries need? They, developed countries, need to pay more attention, need to pay more responsibilities, providing financial assistance to the developing countries solving that issues, including capacity building, demonstration product, and the special maybe technical transfer from the developed countries to developing country without any charge. And also they need to you know, uh, assist uh, maybe different stakeholders in the developed countries making the demonstration. Uh, and then maybe uh, the government can help uh, local poor peoples, in particular vulnerable peoples, achieving the goal of the biodiversity from the local on the ground. Mm-hmm. Coming up next, climate change and biodiversity loss should be addressed together, and cross-border cooperation is essential. So it means that uh, the people of the climate change group, they already realize that uh, biodiversity also is one of the issues relating to the climate change. Comparing to the climate change, biodiversity has a long way to go, and also through the whole process of the decision-making, take the consideration of the biodiversity and climate. It's really important to look at the whole cycle, you know, consumption and production in both climate change and biodiversity. For future economic trends, this is BizTalk. Biodiversity loss and climate change should not be tackled independently of each other. The United Nations says that global annual spending to protect and restore nature on land needs to triple to $350 billion by 2030 and to $536 billion by 2050. It is a daunting task, but the UN also points out that if countries act now, a sustainable global future for people and nature is still achievable. Mr. Townshed, we know that common but differentiated responsibilities is a principle for uh, the global environment law. What do you think about equity in addressing global challenges? But I'd just like to make a point on the 
on the biodiversity and climate um, nexus because I think you know we're in this period now where we have just had COP15 part one, COP26 in Glasgow in the UK on climate change and then COP15 part two. Yeah, I think we're increasingly now seeing the messaging, especially from the biodiversity side, about the importance of tackling these two global crises together. For example, one of the biggest um, solutions to tackling emissions is clean energy. So clean energy infrastructure, solar, wind, hydropower, these forms of energy, they have a land footprint that can be up to 12 times the, uh, the footprint of traditional energy. So if we don't plan that infrastructure carefully, we, we risk trying with all good intention tackling climate change, but undermining biodiversity. You know, a lot of those renewable resources are in areas of pristine nature. And we also need the infrastructure to take that energy from those places to the cities. So how we plan that clean energy infrastructure is really, really important. We must integrate biodiversity into those decisions. So it's it's really vital that that we bring these two issues together and it's great today that you're talking on a climate program about biodiversity because um, that's absolutely what what needs to happen so i just wanted to stress that point for the for the viewers um at home as to why it's important to bring these two issues together indeed the two goals must be achieved together what about your thoughts on that climate change and biodiversity interact and also we can achieve both or we can feel it both so mm -hmm. that is a basic idea since uh, what we can learn from the system is to set up the long-term target. That means to give the market a clear signal. The government jointly have the political consensus will do that firmly. Uh, when we address the car uh, climate change and biodiversity, it's really to put both of them mainstream them into the sector, not tackling with one issue and forget the other one, or put one first and second the others. That does not work. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that, Mr. Tang? I, I agree. In fact, uh, in my views, uh, there is very, uh, very close relations between climate change and biodiversity. Uh, in my experience in Asian Development Bank and AIIB, I found that a lot of renewable projects, in particular wind power projects, that yes, benefit to the climate change, mm -hmm. but may cause uh, significant right. impact to the biodiversity. Right. So therefore, sometimes this is uh, kind of, you know, the positive uh, relations, but sometimes negative, you know, relations between biodiversity and the climate change. In order to achieve, you know, these two goals in parallel, that's in my uh, understandings, and also we can efficiently use the limited uh, financial resources. Mm -hmm. And how do we enhance international cooperation to uh, promote these sustainable development goals? We feel that the collaborations of the international community among different stakeholders are very, very much important. Uh, that issues for the biodiversity cannot be simply solved by the environmental group, and also uh, similar, you know, cannot be solved by the financial. So uh, we therefore, you know, hope that we putting all, you know, that different stakeholders sitting together 
collaborating each other. So uh, what I'm thinking, collaborations in particular, international collaboration uh, between developed, developing uh, parties will be essential in order to achieve the goal of the sustainable development. Mm -hmm. China is home to exceptional biodiversity reserves with roughly 10% of the world's plant species and 14% of animal species. China is also forging ahead with plans for the world's largest national park system. One of the parks stretches from the forested slopes of the giant panda habitat in Sichuan province to the three parallel rivers UNESCO Biodiversity Hotspot in Yunnan province. With the second part of COP15 on its way, China will also show its commitment to global environmental protection cooperation. Uh, Mr. Townshend, could you tell us more about the cooperation between China and the Parson Institute? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'd love to give you an example, actually, because um, when we're talking about international cooperation, I think this is you know, absolutely vital. So nature doesn't know, you know, borders, international borders. Climate change doesn't know international borders. And if you look at ecosystems, one example is um, the migratory birds that fly all the way from Australia, New Zealand, uh, up to the Arctic Circle. Uh, to breed and back every year and these birds cross about 22 countries and right at the heart of that migratory route is the Yellow Sea, uh, China's coast. The intertidal mudflats there are like a, a service station for these this on this bird expressway you know, from Australia, New Zealand to Russia and uh, it's like a five-star service station because it offers very rich food and for many birds this is their only stop on their way uh, north. And that's why there's a, a partnership called the Asia-Australasian Flyway Partnership, which brings together governments and NGOs uh, and international organizations, of which the Paulson Institute is one. And it was very heartening in 2019 to see the Chinese government uh, completely turn their policy 180 degrees from reclamation of these important coastal wetlands to protecting them. So they, they issued a ban on further reclamation of these coastal wetlands. Uh, they protected, uh, committed to protect the remaining ones and the first two most important have now been inscribed as World Heritage Sites because of their natural heritage. Uh, and there are another 10 or so sites uh, due to be inscribed in, in the next couple of years. Calculation of the economic benefits of these wetlands suddenly meant that the, the balance whether to develop these or not suddenly shifted in favor of, of nature and, and protecting the, these places and I think that's a really good example of how properly valuing nature will tell you that these sites are really important and shouldn't be developed and that was teamwork across the flyway across 22 countries Indeed. and that's the kind of thing that we need to see more of um, coming after the, the Kuming Agreement. Well, hope we can see more such examples in the future demonstrating what we can achieve as human beings together. Well, thank you so much for your wonderful insights. That's all the time we have for today. Tan Dinding, Academic Committee Member of the International Financial Forum, and Li Fang, Country Director of WRI China, and Terry Townshed, Advisor of Parson Institute for us. And that would do it for this edition of Climate Talk on CGTN.